Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Episode 5, exciting. I'm Cam Connor and my son Chris Connor. So, Dad, we're in episode five. That's about four more episodes that than you thought we'd end up recording. So, how do you feel five episodes in? Uh, I plead the fifth. I, I, I don't really... It, this is kind of a... It's interesting to reminisce, but we still probably got another five or ten more to go before we're all done. But I'm committed. We won't be done. We have other things to talk about. We have interviews we could do. There's lots to, wow. there's lots to do. I know it's a lot of work to... To think about uh, to place yourself back 30, 40 years ago. And the topic of today's episode brings you back, what would that be? 30, 89, probably like 40 years ago. Right, uh, right. Where we're talking about your time with the Montreal Canadiens. And it's an interesting time because it's kind of the end of the dynasty years where you got to play a big part in especially one game, so we'll talk about the double overtime goal that you scored. So that's the main topic for today, but I thought we could talk a little bit about the challenge that we do every year. I know we missed last year, but uh, we play tennis every year, and we will say maybe 15 years in a row, my dad has won. He's in his 60s, I'm in my 30s. Now, that's 15 out of 15 years in a row. But I'd like to say that he cheats. And he has cheap shots, and I don't even know what you would call these shots, where you hit the ball up in the air as high as possible, like a moon ball, and the bounce bounces over my head practically. <laughs> so it, I wouldn't call it tennis, but he does win the points. Chris, so. Chris, Chris, it's many, many years of developing that trick shot, plus my serve. I put a little spin on it. I used to be a baseball pitcher, so I developed... You know, I mean, like everybody else, I learned how to throw a drop ball, a curve ball, a rising ball. And so it's just a matter of having the same kind of technique, putting spins on it when I serve. And Chris thinks he's going to land in front of him, and it jumps over about a yard or two to the left or right. So it's not a, a fun game to play because yeah, the ball... Yeah, because you're losing. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, we'll keep you all posted in terms of who wins. There's still a, a bit of uh, nice weather where we are, so we're going to try and get a game in soon and we'll keep you posted hopefully i can break the streak i hope i don't have to wait till you're 90 to beat you but (laughs) i hope i live to 90 (laughs) so we have a question from last week's podcast that was will really well uh, received the roddy piper part two episode and the story uh, people like the roddy piper stuff but they really enjoyed the john cena story and so we have someone from Twitter, that's actually a really big supporter of our podcast, who goes by the handle Blue Collar Blue Shirts. You know him, right, Dad? Correct. And so he listened to the John Cena story where he tried to kick the crap out of you, or at least threatens you, and he wonders if Roddy Piper was in on this, like it was a rib. Do you think that maybe that was the case, that he got Cena riled up? And I actually never thought of that, but that's a good question. Well, just by the way Rod reacted, uh, the way I reacted, I don't believe Rod was in on this because 
Rod couldn't keep a secret. He would have let me know later, you know, that he got Cena to do this. But again, after watching Cena on TV with the Bellas, he acts like a real gentleman and he's a classy guy, wears a suit and tie. That's not the John Cena I saw behind the scenes. So I think he traumatized me, but I don't think Piper was on it. Okay, well, that's in good. on it. Yeah, it's still a, an interesting story. I guess we'll never know unless you run into John Cena again. I don't plan on it. Yeah. <laughs> So we've had a lot of people who've asked for some current stories and insight from you. So I know one of your friends is in the news lately and is the GM of the Las Vegas Golden Knights team. And that's a really interesting team. And so the GM's name is George McPhee, who you played with in New York and actually a few other teams. And I know you have a lot of interesting things to say. So can you share a story about story or two about George McPhee and then... Maybe what you think the Vegas team's prospects are. Okay. Well, I met uh, George McPhee when he first joined. Let me back this up. He came out of Bowling Green College. He ended up winning the Hobie Baker Award, and he got a business degree while at Bowling Green. He was with the Rangers, and he got sent to the farm team, and I'm still with the big team. And I had a friend of mine on the farm team as well named Mike Backman. And Mike called me in New York one day, and he said, Cam, we've got this guy named George McPhee from the farm team that's been in the hospital in New York City for maybe, I think he said, two or three weeks in traction, and not one of the Ranger players or management has even gone up to say hello to the guy. He doesn't know anybody. He's just sitting there. Would you go up and say hello to him? So, by all means. Which you, you did mention this last week. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. That's right. And so, when I went up to see George, that's the first time I met him. And uh pretty weird talking to a guy you've never met before who's all strung out with weights on his legs and is stretching his back out. And But George is uh, quite a character. So that's where I, I first got to, to meet George, and uh, we told some stories back and forth. And uh, and how would you describe his personality? Because he comes across really intelligent and pretty serious. Well, he, he has that side to him, but, you know, he's a GM now, and I think that's the side you got to portray. But George also has another side where he's a lot of fun, and uh, he'll make you laugh by being George. And that's the, the guy that I know the best. And what kind of a player was he? I never got to watch him that I remember. Well, George, he was five foot nine and 170 pounds. You know, he wasn't somebody that had big arms or, you know, was going to intimidate you at 170. But he really didn't know he was 170 pounds. He played like he was over 200 pounds. And he had a lot of balls, that guy. He would show up and fight all the tough guys. And uh, he could play hockey. But the old guys that are bigger than him and didn't know George, it's the old story. You reach for a rabbit and you grab a bear. All of a sudden, they're in a fight with George, and they go, oh, my God, I didn't know this guy was that tough by just looking at him. George, when we were, you know, when I first met him up in the hospital, one of the things he told me, he said, man, this New York City's crazy. So I think what it was, if I remember correctly, that they, towards the end of his stay in the hospital, I think they let him out of traction a little bit to move around, and then they put him back into this traction position but when he was up he said he went and looked out the window and he heard a bunch of noise and actually what it was there was a gunfight going on in New York City just below his hospital window so he was watching that and he just said wow New York City I don't know if the rest of the city's like this but I just saw a gunfight and you actually since we do lots of tangents 
you actually saw a mob hit or something to do with the mob hit, right? When you were in New York? Yes, I did. Actually, I didn't see the mob hit itself, but I got there about 30 seconds later. When I finished hockey, I started working in Midtown Manhattan in the computer consulting industry, which I was in for 25 years. And I was leaving work at about 5.30, heading to Grand Central Station. And the New York City blocks, like if you live in Canada and you go to Toronto or Calgary, Edmonton, the city blocks are about half the size of a New York City block. So I was walking to the end of the block, and uh, there was Paul Castellano, who was the head of the mob in New York City, laying there with his bodyguard. He had, uh, The two of them had just been shot in front of a restaurant called Sparks. And again, that was about a 30-second walk from my office. The cops hadn't got there yet. So I just see these two guys laying in the street. And uh, when I read John Gotti's book, John Gotti had said that him and his henchman, Sonny Bravado or something, were sitting across the street watching all this unfold. And that they actually had three guys um, on three different corners of the street in yellow raincoats. And the reason for that is is that if the if the Paul Castellano got by the first guy and couldn't get him, he had to go by the second guy on the next corner. And if that guy didn't meet him, he had to turn right down a one way. There was another guy. And the reason he had them all in yellow uh, raincoats because he said when you go to identify these guys, what are you going to say? Well, they were wearing yellow raincoats, so there's really no description. So, so I did see the aftermath out of that for sure. So that kind of confirms uh, what George was thinking back then, that New York City's crazy. At least in the 80s, it was. Yeah, I think it's cleaned up quite a bit today. So back to George. Yeah. Well, again, you know, uh, with George, he played in the Ranger organization, I want to say, about five years. They didn't really give him a chance. There was a guy named Craig Patrick, the GM, and uh, George really, he was a good hockey player. But you, you just need somebody to give you a chance and give you a little ice time. And let you work the kinks out. George didn't get that chance. Until one year there was training camp. And they took on the New Jersey Devils. And there was a fellow by the name of Scott Stevens. And I think anybody who's followed hockey would know who Scott Stevens is. He was, he's six foot two and about 215, 220 pounds. A hard, hard nosed hitting hockey player. Like, you better keep your head up because he knocked the Lindros out. He, like, he hurt a lot of guys at center ice when you're carrying the puck and you have your head down. And he was a really good fighter. So the exhibition match, George, and, and George, like I said, he, he played like he's over 200 pounds. And it's got Stevens bang into each other. And they must have fought, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, for a, a good three minutes straight. Boom, 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 boom. Both of them punching each other. And George didn't back down one little bit. When he'd finished that fight, Scott knew he was in a fight. And George represented himself and the Rangers very well. By him standing up to Scott Stevens and not just throwing a couple and hanging on, he fought him like a man. That was the beginning of him on the Ranger team. And I think he put in 50 games that year with the Rangers. But more or less over five years, they had him coming up and down, um, you know, with the Rangers. You know, George, he always... Uh, I got to know him. I got sent to the farm team in Tulsa. And so George and I and some other guys would hang out. And he'd come over, like I remember, for Thanksgiving. And we'd go to concerts together. And we'd go out for beer. And very intelligent person. There's no doubt about it. So when he went to Bowling Green, he, he won the Hobie Baker Award, which is quite an honor. And he got his business degree there, as I said. And 
He also always said, I want to be a GM. I want to be a GM. So one day, I looked in the paper, and he was like assistant GM for the Vancouver Canucks. And I got a hold of him. I said, George, how'd you get there? And he calls me Cammy. He said, Cammy, he said, you know, I'd like to go out when I lived in New York City. He was single. He said, but I always wanted to be a GM. And I went through hell for two years. He said, I didn't come out of my apartment. He said, I paid a price. He said, every night I just did, you know, his, his, his schoolwork. And so, anyways, he went to Princeton University. And after two years, he got his law degree. And that opened the door. So he has his business now, his law degree. Well-educated guy. And so he started off with Vancouver. And then I think he went directly to Washington. And I just actually Googled George today. And I think it said he was there in that organization for 17 years. George is a a smart cookie, a tough boy. He kind of has it all. And you actually just uh, connected with him over the summer through email. So it would be interesting if we can maybe get him on the podcast one day. I'm sure he's very busy, but you never know. No, you never know, for sure. I'll have to track him down. We'd have to maybe do a little bit of emailing and see if the timing is right. So with him as the GM, what do you think the Vegas team's prospects are? You know, I think um, if you follow hockey, you follow George's uh, draft. And George was pretty crafty. Each team had players that they couldn't protect, but they really wanted to keep. And if you want George to leave your guys alone that you don't protect, you got to make a deal with them. So George wasn't out to make friends with the other GMs. He's out there to put the best team on ice that he can. And, you know, when you're in that market uh, like Las Vegas, it's you talk to people. Is it going to make it? Is it? Nobody really knows what the future is. Is it going to be another Phoenix? Don't know. So George's job is to put that a good hockey team on year one. And I think his goal is to, for sure, get in the playoffs. I think he's got enough quality players. I think he's probably got the best team ever for an expansion squad, starting with no players. And uh, when you pick a team, as most people know, you got to find the very best goalie you can. And uh, he's got Fleury and Net, which he came from Pittsburgh. He's, he's a hell of a goalie. He showed what he could do in the playoffs. His regular season last year wasn't his best, but he rose to the occasion in the playoffs. And if uh, Fleury can continue where he left off last year, there is no doubt that George is going to have a team that gets in the playoffs his first year. So you're predicting playoffs? I do. And I think he's also, when you look at some of the guys on his team, I think he's got, it's not a matter of, I played in the World Hockey for a guy named Sandy Huckle. It was in Phoenix, the most boring game to watch. We made the playoffs, but he told us, unless you have over a 90% chance when you go on the other teams and to get the puck, just peel back and pick up your winger. Okay, we won hockey games, but we didn't sell the game of hockey. Like, he missed the boat on that. Hockey is an exciting sport, and you should put the players on the ice that can entertain and win hockey games. That's what I think George has done. Is you, you, Yeah, you can make the playoffs, but you got to entertain. That's what it's all about. And George is smart enough to, uh, to know that, that it's more than just getting into the playoffs. Well, it would be interesting to see what uh, your Twitter followers think. So send my dad a tweet at CamConnorNHL and let us know if you agree that Vegas will make the playoffs because that's a bold prediction for a team in the first year. It is. Okay, so thanks for for all that. Now we're going to go to the main topic, which is 
Montreal Canadiens, 78-79, when you played for them, probably a highlight of your career. I know that in, I think, uh, episode one, you talked about one of your biggest regrets, which was going to the WHA instead of directly to the Montreal Canadiens because you were a number one draft choice fifth overall. So let's talk about why you decided or how you ended up back in the Montreal Canadiens. Give a little bit of context to how amazing this team was, this dynasty team that you joined. Okay, well, let's start off. How did I end up back in that organization? So I went to Phoenix Roadrunners, signed a five-year deal, and that team ended up folding, I think, its third season. So I, uh, I went to Houston Arrows from there. And I signed a seven-year, no-cut, no-trade contract. And uh, they folded after two years. So now I've got a total of 12 years' worth of contracts in four years with uh, the World Hockey. And both of the teams I played for folded. Um, at the end of the year, all of Houston Arrows hockey players were sold to the Winnipeg Jets. I am from Winnipeg. and um, But it's the WHA. And so they offered me more money and a five-year contract, as Montreal did. But I just said, okay, if I'm going to stay in the world hockey and I'm going to Winnipeg, I have got to get a guaranteed five years. Because if they fold on me or they're not invited into the National Hockey League, now what? So they said they wanted me on the team, but they couldn't guarantee me a five-year contract. So I went to Montreal Canadiens for less money. And actually, I couldn't have gone wrong that year because the Winnipeg Jets won the AFCO Cup and Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. But I'll take a Stanley Cup any day. So when you say you you went to Montreal, how did that conversation happen? And were were they upset that you didn't go to them in the first place? Well, it was interesting. I think they were a little upset because I got some phone calls from Scotty Bowman and uh, he was trying to talk me into when I was just out of junior to play for them. But I, I gave the World Hockey my word. I couldn't go back on my word. Yeah, they were upset. And the reason, with Montreal, there were some legal problems because Winnipeg Jets, they said, oh, no, no, he was sold as part of the assets, so he's got to come here to Winnipeg. And my argument was I had a no-cut, no-trade, so I'm a free agent. And so Montreal couldn't sign me right away, and there was a little bit of a lawsuit going on, and that's really why I started the season late with Montreal because this lawsuit hadn't quite worked itself out yet. Um, so the actually Montreal Canadiens told my wife and I, and we were living in Houston, you know, kind of in limbo, and we traditionally would go back to Winnipeg for the summer. But Montreal Canadiens said, don't go back to Winnipeg. We don't want you in Winnipeg because I, I guess they felt that uh, the ownership of the Winnipeg Jets could easily get a hold of me and invite me over to their house for dinner and talk me into signing with them. But they obviously don't know me. Um, again, a handshake and my word is my word. So what they told me was, is that that summer, that the wife and I, they would pay for two months. We could go anywhere we wanted in the world. Just stay out of Winnipeg and Montreal Canadiens would pay the shot. I didn't take them up on this because I was wondering how I could train properly when I'm out sightseeing in the various countries. So I would kind of regret it, but uh, I had to do what was best for me. And so that's... That's, that's the reason I end up going to Montreal. What did mom think of you uh, turning <laughs> down that church? Well, she kind of, she you know, she tried to talk me into, well, Cam, I know you, you'll work out. But I just knew me. I had to be in a certain environment in order to uh, to show up and shape. Yep. And so when you joined the team, how did 
how did you feel? Were you intimidated? How did they receive you? Especially knowing that you, you chose not to join their team. Well, again, and you know, the players are the players. You know, they go ahead and play whether you're on the team or not, and you just do the best you can. So players, they didn't care. They didn't hold it against me. They never even brought it up. Uh, once I'm there, Bowman doesn't bring it up. So it was really a non-issue that I didn't play for him before. I do remember going to training camp with all of these well-known hockey players. And the first, because I came from Texas, so I remember the first day. I wore this cowboy outfit with leather and blue jeans with a cowboy hat. And so uh, I didn't try to make an impression, but that's kind of how I walked around some days in uh, in Houston. So anyways, the boys got a kick out of that. And so, they, you know, you go through all your strength tests and your medical and so on. And my blood pressure has always been high ever since I was like 20 years old. It's been off the charts. So the team orthopedic surgeon, he was taking my blood pressure and he said, wow, this is really high. Come back in half hour. And I came back in a half hour. Oh, it's still high. Come back a little later. And I came back and he said, still high. He said, are you just, is this so high because you're just excited to be here with like Lafleur and Ganey and Robinson and these guys? I said, I don't know, maybe. But I didn't tell him I've always had high blood pressure. So that that's, uh, was training camp. But, uh, you know, just to talk about it in the early days, for me, when I look back in the seasons that I played well, even in junior, the kind of coach I need is the one that pats you on the back, not cuts you up. And then back in my day, uh, when I played, you know, the management, they were in charge and they were the bosses and the players, they had either the NHL or WHA. And there wasn't many guys going over to Europe then. Today with their salaries, these coaches are a lot more down to earth and they're more player friendly. And Bowman, he was on my case like you wouldn't believe the first two weeks. He was nasty to me. I remember Steve Shutt coming up to me and he said, Cam, I think he'd been there already seven or eight years. And he said, Bowman's, he's bad to everybody. He's nasty with them all. So I said, okay, I don't feel as bad. He said, but I got to tell you, he's treated you the worst out of anybody. Why? I don't really know. I mean, I really don't know. So I remember after first two weeks after practice, Toe Blake was in the hospital and he used to coach Canadians. So he didn't know me and I went up, to found out what hospital he was in, and I went up to his room, and I came in, and I introduced myself to him. I said, Toe, you don't know me, and he said, oh, I do know you, Cam. He says, you're a good hockey player, and he gave me some compliments, and I, I remember saying to Toe, Toe, i got to ask you one question. Do you have to be a prick to coach? And his words were, yeah, you do, Cam. So I think that's the way it was with the Canadians when there were six teams, and the players didn't have a choice. They ruled by fear and by yelling and through negative. Well, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because I have a quote ready for you from Steve Shutt. And he talks about Scotty Bowman and it actually has to, to do with how tough he was. And so he said, the strangest thing with Scotty would be that the farther ahead we were in the game, the more agitated he'd become. If we were playing a tight two to one game, he kept quiet and didn't say anything. But if we were up four or five goals, he'd go crazy. He'd be screaming at us to stay on them, not to goof off and let the other team into the game. And that was from Steve Shutt. Does yeah. that sound familiar? Oh, yeah, but it's even deeper than that. Like I said, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny. There's double standards in everything in life. And so, you know, if uh, somebody like uh, Cornway or Lafleur or one of these nine Hall of Famers made a mistake, 
Scotty, he knew better than saying to them and criticize them. But if I made a mistake, you just think I shot somebody with a bazooka. He was just nasty with me. So I don't play well for people like that. I just don't. I, I'll do my best and I'll work hard. But I'm just spinning my wheels out there. So when I look back at my year in Montreal, I certainly didn't play with confidence. And uh, I don't think Scotty, for me, was the right coach. Uh, when you, you look at a guy from junior Patty Janelle, when I had a super, super year, he gave me a pats on the back. He gave me confidence. And that's what my buddy Roddy Piper did. He'd always be making me feel like I was somebody good and somebody positive. And, and that's how you need to coach a guy. You can't coach everybody, paint them all with the same brush. Because you had a guy like Pierre LaRouche on our team that year. He scored 50 goals twice with two different teams. And he was a good hockey player, a natural talent. And you can scream and yell at him to pick it up. And it wouldn't take away his confidence one little bit. He'd skate a little harder in practice. But for me, that's not how you got the most out of me. So I think coaches out there, you got to realize, you know, what you have in a player, whether it's somebody you've got to push or somebody you've got to pull. And so I was off to a bad start with Bowman for sure. And I think that's a good topic for an upcoming podcast is just talking about all the different coaches that you had. Um, you had Glenn Sather. Yeah, oh, right? I, I've had Fred Shiro. I, I, I've had some good coaches. You're right. I'm, I'm holding on to a Fred Shiro story that I know oh. <laughs> my dad won't be able to get through without crying. So if you want to hear well, him cry, I'll keep it no, posted. That's but, that's about another guy at the rink that I usually okay. get all choked up. But Freddie, that's a pretty funny story. Okay, so so yeah, we'll we'll talk about coaches another time. So why don't we talk about you know the different players? Well, why don't well, we start with Gila Fleur? Well. Fair enough. And like, I just, you know, I've had a few concussions uh, playing in the National Hockey League from elbows to the head to pucks in the head. And it takes me a while to get set up for these podcasts. I've got to write things down and then I got to redo it. And then, you know, when I'm all done, then I say, oh, I remember another story. And so it, it's, it's a little bit of an effort, but so some of these things are not in order, but I'll just talk about the different bolts that I put down. When I think about Guy Lafleur, outside of St. Gordy Howe, and, you know, you can't take away from Wayne Gretzky a class act. Guy was one of my favorites by far. What I like about him is one of the, some of the teams I played on when they had some really good finesse players, and if I got rough out there, I remember, and I won't name names, they'd come back to the bench and they'd say to the coach, Coach so-and-so speared me or they did this. Can you get Cam after him? Can you do this? And I used to get pissed off when I hear that. I, they're getting all the ice time. And maybe that was just my role. I don't think so. But with Lafleur, I remember one time we were in the shower after playing the Bruins in the playoffs. And I think we had them six games in a row. And uh, I looked at his his upper body was full of like like red marks. And I said, Gee, what happened to you? And he, matter of fact, he said, oh, the Boston Bruin players, they slash me and spear me. And with Guy, he never took one step backwards. He never complained. He didn't let that throw his game off. And that's the same with Cornway and all those great Canadians. You know, back in 79, 80, in, in all the 70s, the Flyers were had the Broad Street Bullies. And they ruled by intimidation. And the good players, you're not going to intimidate them. They'll come back just as hard the very next shift. And uh, that's what Guy is. And he's a competitor. He put the pressure on himself to do well. And I remember that when we played Boston Bruins again in the playoffs, 
and he would do this for all the teams, but I just remember, you know, with Boston, he would get to the, it's a 7.30 game, and, you know, I think we had to be there about 5. Lafleur would get there about 2, and then he would get dressed and tighten his skates up, put his full gear on, sweater, everything, and he'd be in the trainer's room by 3 o'clock, and he would close the door, and he would concentrate and meditate and think about what he had to do when that puck was dropped for game time. He'd get himself prepared to do what he had to do to win and not take a step backwards. And I remember it'd be like uh, we go on the ice at five minutes to seven for warm-ups. And so two minutes before we go on the ice, Bowman would come in the, uh, into the dressing room and do a little talking. And so three minutes before, you know, we go on the ice, a minute before Bowman would get there, we'd knock on the trainer's door and Lafleur would know, okay, it's time to come out of there. And when he opened that door, it was in our dressing room, you would not believe the cigarette smoke that came out of there. It was unbelievable how many smokes he had in there. And, and you know, you kind of say, how could that guy be so good? And look how much he smokes. But, you know, I don't even know if anybody today smokes. But back then, the Montreal Canadiens, they drank lots of beer. And you had the guys that smoked. So, uh, anyways, I, I can't say enough about Lafleur as hockey player. And as a person, he never bragged about himself, and he was always a great, great teammate to everyone. Uh, we were owned by Molson Canadians back then, and every second weekend, you'd open your front door to your house, and there'd be two two-fours of Molson Canadians left on your door. They would keep us stocked in beer, which was uh, pretty nice. And you don't even drink beer. I, I, I don't drink much of it for sure. I'm sure I didn't have any problems giving it to some of the teammates that, that like to drink beer. So I have a question for you. What was it like not knowing French in Montreal? Did the Was there kind of a, a French contingent of players that hung around each other? And also, how did the media treat the players that didn't speak French? Well, I'll tell you, the media, to me, they were very good. They were French media for the most part. And they were so polite, and they were they were classy. They realized. I mean, I'm an English guy from Winnipeg. I just I took ten years of French in uh, school growing up in Winnipeg. My some of my best friends were French. I was so bad in French that I'll never forget it. In grade ten, the French teacher came up to me and said to me, "Cam, we will pass you this year in French if you promise not to take it next year." <laughs> so I said, "Deal." So yeah. You know, the players, there was a lot of French players on the team. And what they would do is if there was the French players just talking to each other and had nothing to do with the team, they would just talk French to each other. And uh, it had something that all of us should be involved in. They would speak English. And so I loved that team. I loved all the players. They were classy. They were real teammates. And there was nobody, uh, unlike some other teams I played for, where players were out for themselves. This was a true team. It's interesting when you uh, play for the Canadians. The fans love this hockey team. They know all the players. And if you go out, the fans definitely come over and ask for your autograph. If you go to the bar, you got to behave yourself because the fans know who you are. And it was so interesting. So if a couple of us went out night before a game, two nights before the game, to a bar in, in, in Montreal, Let's just make this up. So let's say I had, uh, you know, two beer and uh, a shooter. And then went to another bar a little while later and had 
you know, another beer and a shooter. The next morning, you would come in, in your dressing room, and there'd be a note in your stall, and it'd say, go see Scotty. So, you go to see Scotty, and he'd say, well, uh, Cam, uh, last night you were seen in the bar Thursdays, you had two beer and a shooter, and then you were seen over at the bar called Fridays, and then you had another beer and a shooter. The fans would phone and tell on you. Like, they loved their hockey team, and they wanted us to win. And they would phone all the time, and it was quite regular. You had to go see Scotty because he knew exactly what you were doing the night before or two nights before. So some of the guys who I'll leave nameless, they were sneaky. They'd go to quieter little bars and try to blend in, and they'd still, you know, poor Rick Chartra because Rick was single living in New York City or living in Montreal. And he wasn't as sneaky as some of the other single guys, so he got more trouble than anybody. I think it's 40 years later he can move. No, <laughs> I'm not David no. anybody, no. <laughs> no. Um, so, you know, that was always interesting. And, and uh, I remember Kenny Dryden. There was where I lived. Kenny was nearby. Lafleur was nearby. Ganey was nearby. Robinson and Le, like Cor- yeah, Corwin Lemaire. We all kind of lived in the same area, so we would carpool all the time. And quite often, Dryden would pick me up in the mornings for when we go to our charter or we, you know, fly in our commercial airlines. And uh, he had a, and I want to say it was like a 64 Comet. It was an older car in good shape. So he'd pick me up. And the damn thing, though, was whenever we'd be gone for a day or two and you'd come back uh, to the airport, Kenny needed a new battery. Kenny was so cheap, he never would go spend money on a battery. He always had his booster cables. So, you know, I'm in a hurry to get back. Well, Kenny's car wouldn't start. But all he had to do is he'd pull out his booster cables out of his trunk, go stand in front of his vehicle with his booster cables. The first car that goes by, they go, that's Kenny driving. So we never had any problems getting people to boost. But I almost went out and bought you know, Kenny, a new battery, but he made a lot more money than me, so I was determined he was going to buy his own battery. One of the things with Montreal, um, they've won like 24 championships, which is probably more than any other team in any other sport. They work hard on the ice. That's one thing is the practices were hard, and you're taught that you play the same way you practice. So if you float in practice, and you say, okay, now I'm going to work in the game. It doesn't work that way. So every day in Montreal, we scrimmaged every single day, even if it was only for five or ten minutes. And um, it was it was just like a game. Take the body, keep your head up. So when the practices were over, we'd usually start skating about, say, ten in the morning. And then us black aces had to stay a little bit longer on the ice and had to get on before anybody else. And then we had to do the weights, the stationary bike after. So let's say across the street, and I, I don't know if it's, I think it was called a brasserie, but there was no women allowed in it. And so none of the guys were on any ego trips. Every day we'd say, well, let's go for a beer together. And we would go across the street more or less from 1, 1.30 till about 5.30 every single day when we were in Montreal. And we sit around a round table at the bar, and you didn't have to drink. Nobody made you drink. We wanted you to show up. So if you weren't a drinker, you were just expected to buy a round when it came your turn. Nobody put the pressure. We wanted you there because you're a teammate, and we got to know each other. And we used to play what's called bullshit poker with dollar bills when they had dollar bills. 
we did this every day, and uh, we hung around off the ice, and we played as a team on the ice. So it was no accident that this team was has been successful. And it was, you were the older guys that kind of passed along the ways to the younger guys, and it was a tradition that we would hang together. And then if you look at the New York Rangers when I was there, they hadn't won the Cup in over 50 years. And when we would say, well, let's go for a beer after practice or a sandwich or something, you'd get three or four guys that would show up. And you'd get the Swedes would go hang with the Swedes and the Finns would go hang with the Finns. And we had some married guys whose wives wouldn't let them go out for a beer with the teammates. And then we had the guys, uh, single guys in New York City would head back to New York City. And so we didn't hang around as a team off the ice. And we didn't play as a team on the ice. So something to learn about that. I think it's so important that you get to know your teammates, not just at the rink. One of the funnier stories, though, <laughs> oh, this one is a, this one is, I've never heard anything like this before. Kenny Dryden was the number one goalie. He had been the number one goalie for five, six, seven, eight years. He was unbelievable goalie. And Bunny LaRock, I believe he was a first rounder. But when you are behind Kenny that plays 70-80% of the games and you're the practice goalie, and there's no team that shoots the puck at the goalie more in practice than the Canadians, those goalies see so much rubber. And if you hit a goalie in the face in practice, most goalies, they'll chase you around the ice, going to hit you with their stick, and they're all mad. With the Canadian goalies, they were there to stop pucks. You hit them in the head, in the face, they just shook their head, shook it off, got right back in net. They were true goalies. And so if you go down and shoot on Ken Dryden, out of 10 shots, maybe you'll get one or two on Kenny. He was that good. But you go down to Bunny, because Bunny's had way too much rubber shot at him. He just wasn't as good as, you know, when you're the backup. So he probably didn't even care if he stopped it in practice. We could go down and without any lie, score 9 out of 10 on Bunny. So here we are, we're playing the Bruins in the playoffs, and uh, the t- traditional way it works, okay, day of the game, Dryden's playing, go off the ice after this morning skate, Bunny would stay out, and so this was the typical, Kenny went off, Bunny stayed on the ice for extra shots from the players that were staying on the ice, and so that night, they, they Bowman come in the dressing room two minutes before, and he gives the pet talk, and we had to win this game. If we lost this game, our season was over. The Bruins were leading the series. We had to win this game. Now, Kenny hadn't been playing the way Kenny could during the playoffs against the Bruins. But even a Kenny that wasn't playing as good has, and I'm not knocking Bunny, believe me, he was a wonderful teammate. But even Kenny not playing as well would do better than Bunny would do just because he just didn't get that extra game time. And so he, he wasn't as sharp as he used to be. So... We're about to go on the ice, and Bowman gives the little pep talk, and then he said, Bunny, you're out. Let's go. You're starting. And you can't say, Bowman, are you kidding me, man? Like, you you can't say anything. This is our teammate. But we looked at each other and go, oh, my God. So as we're going out into to, through the ice, Bunny Lock, he turned white. And Kenny, he didn't say a word. He wanted to play, but he just kept classy and quiet. This was Bowman's decision. So Bunny was leading us out there. Some of the guys were saying, okay, in the warm-up, you start and you shoot from the blue line, and then as he's warmed up a bit, you come in and shoot from the slot. So they said, well, look, when you warm him up, guys, aim for his pads. Give him some confidence. So we're shooting from the blue line, 
and we're scoring. The guys are scoring on them. And they went, oh, my God. So it wasn't looking good. And Rick Chartrand, he was upset. And I was standing right there, and he came over to me, and he said, no effing way the Bunny's playing tonight. I, I didn't know what that meant. Anyways, it was Shardy's turn to shoot on Bunny. He went into the slot, and if you look at Rick's, his wrists were the size of most people's ankles. He could shoot a puck. He got into the slot. He let a wicked slap shot go, hit Bunny right between the eyes with a slap shot and knocked him out. So the trainer comes running on the ice and uh, puts the smelling salts under Bunny's nose and he says, Bunny, Bunny, are you okay? And Bunny kind of looked up and he said, no, I'm not. And then the trainer said, could you play tonight? And Bunny said, no, I can't. So Dryden came into net. He stood on his head that night and without him being in that net, I would not have the Stanley Cup ring on my finger right now. So that is pretty unusual. I've never heard anybody knocking a goalie out in a warm-up because he didn't want to play it. But uh, thank you, Rick Chartra. So as you can hear, my dad's been sharing lots of stories, but we didn't want this to go too long. So we are going to end this episode now, and we will continue this with part two in a week. And part two is not to be missed. He shares some epic pranks that were played in the Montreal Canadiens locker room, including someone that kept getting hot ice in their jockstrap. That's a good story. The story that you have to tune in for is to hear what happened to former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, what my dad did to him in the Montreal Canadiens locker room after the Stanley Cup. I can't believe it. <laughs> we'll see what you all think. And, w- and also Cam shares what he felt like when he won the Cup and also how he felt when he found out that his name was not going to be on the Stanley Cup and what his teammates did to ensure that his name was on the Cup. So it's an interesting part two coming up. So I hope you listen and maybe we'll get that tennis game in and we'll report back to see who won.